You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment, uh, deepening your practice. It's October 7th, 2021. It's 530. Sorry, it's 735 uh, p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And um, I thought that maybe what we would talk about tonight uh, is view. Um, Right view, of course, is to see the Dharma in all things. Um, But I was um, wanting to talk more about uh, view in relationship to the formation of conceptual reality from ultimate reality. Because the nature of view uh, precedes autobiographical uh, memory, and uh, in in that sense precedes our uh, recollection of ourselves, uh, it's sometimes hard to uh, see. And uh, because it's uh, so often um, infused in the way that we create the perception of reality uh, uh, and and has such an impact on the formation of our intention and action, uh, it's really, uh, uh, in some sense, the basis of practice to really be able to pull apart the way that you create the perception of self and the perception of the world uh, and to see in, in the many ways that this uh, formation of view happens and how it uh, affects the uh, creation of what we perceive is happening. So um, I think it's worth talking about. We have the capacity to sense our five senses and mind uh, in in the Buddhist sense, so touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and mind. Uh, The the five take in the data and mind really directs where our attention goes. I think the first thing to understand about this process is that we don't take in everything that's out there and then create this facsimile of it internally and work from that model of it. We really do select things that are interesting or meaningful to us. So even before uh, the mind moves toward something, we're already, uh, uh, our attention is already being adjusted by our conditioned response to things. Uh, Do you remember the beginning of the creation of this list of preferences that you operate from? Um, Most of the time we don't because the process begins before consciousness of the sense of self begins and the the self-associated memory begins. But imagine for a second that you're an infant in in the crib and you're looking out at the world. What is your attention drawn to? Um, 
do you uh, understand that uh, we uh, we have cones and rods in the eye and cones see color and rods see contrast uh, and that uh, the, the cones develop later so when we we're born we we're really living in a black and white world have you ever been to the baby store and seen the mobiles that they sometimes put above the cribs and some of them are in color and some of them are in black and white and it's easier for uh, infants in the very beginning of life to track the black and white ones than the, the color ones and that at a certain point the world comes into color do you have a favorite color how did you come about that process of uh, preferring one color experience over another and what's built into that preference um, i tend to like red the best my eye is always drawn to red but i i don't think i could really tell you what the history of the conditioning is around that just that uh, that was appealing but i also have a, a sense that in the family environment that I grew up in, red was considered garish, and it wasn't what you were supposed to prefer. So I often found myself expressing yellow as my preference instead of red, because in the family system I grew up in, yellow was an acceptable color, and red was a garish color. Um, and yet, when I see photographs of my mother, uh, the first color photographs in the late 50s and the uh, early 60s, she had bright red nail polish on and, and bright red lipstick. And yet um, later when I can remember, uh, I don't remember any of those images. So I guess it must have been uh, the late 50s more. Uh, quite um, fascinating to me because she was very stylish, very fashionable. Um, but I never remember her in that period. She was um, more of the mom uh, in my early memory of her. And she didn't uh, uh, engage in that expression of a, a young uh, unmarried uh, woman in the 1950s. Are you aware, for instance, that your eye is drawn to things, that your ear is drawn to things? When you hear sounds, do you notice that uh, sometimes you enjoy and sometimes you don't? Some sounds actually don't, you don't even pay attention to. And that you collect these little mind moments, these little snapshots of the world around you um, based on your preferences, and then you create this uh, collage or this uh, panorama of the experience of the world around you. But if you were to take the time and examine your lists of preferences and um, what what's on there, what isn't on there? Christian? Is this, is this like something you train or or that more that different people are aware of at different levels because like i feel like i notice things visually when i'm in novel environments but it, uh -huh. i don't have a sense that i'm actually looking at anything in particular when i'm kind of puttering around the house like 
I think I'm just kind of staring into space, like into the middle <laughs> distance. Well, that's an also another point that you bring up. When you're in a novel environment, you have to create the 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 picture of it, the map of it. And when you're in an environment you've already been in, you've already created the maps, dozens of them. So you don't need to, in each moment, recreate the map. Um, and so what you may find is that you're walking around the apartment, but you're not actually experiencing the, the apartment the way that it is now. You may be experiencing it in the way it was two days ago, because the mind has decided that it doesn't need to spend the calories to create a new image. It can just rely on the old image. This is particularly true in, in uh, spaces where you don't, uh, don't need to do it. Um, you've probably heard me say motorcycles with one headlight are nine times more likely to be run off the road than mo motorcycles with two headlights. And the most treacherous routes for motorcycles are commuter routes because people don't see motorcycles. Uh, they're, they're often not even using the image of the present moment experience. They're using the an image from last week when they were driving. Can you distinctly separate each of the drives that you commuted back and forth to where you were going, or is it all sort of one um, conglomerate, uh, one um, collective memory of it? You can, of course, train yourself to, to insist that the mind generate an image that corresponds to where you are. That's one of the things that I think is useful to do. It takes a lot of energy to do that. And so you have to insist on it. Otherwise, the mind will simply conserve energy. Uh, it takes uh, a lot of calories to generate each of these images. I use this um, um, uh, I was teaching it against the stream uh, and I went into Melrose and I like tribal rugs. It's a, uh, I really like them. And I, I tend to like bold patterns and bright colors in tribal rugs. And I walked in and there was this new tribal rug uh, underneath where the, the teacher sits on the dais. And I thought it was fantastic. And I walked over and I was talking about it. What I failed to notice when I first looked was that there were two 12 foot palm trees next to the, uh, <laughs> the rug, and they were not included at all in the first image. It was literally just the new rug. Um, and uh, what's fascinating about this, particularly in visual space, is uh, in some sense you have to uh, undo your reliance on visual experience if you're seeing uh, because you get so used to it that you think that that's actually how it is. When instead of understanding that you created, that's why uh, I talk about twilight meditation. Um, sitting in a room that has natural light that gets very dark when the sun sets, sitting just before the sun sets. So you're in the room, you see the room the way that it is, you see it in color, and then as the sun sets gradually, the color drains out of it and you're in a black and white space. And then as the light gets dim enough that you can no longer make out the edges, the whole form of the room begins to flow and settle and flow and settle. And then when there's not enough light even to activate 
the rods and the eyes, the mind stops creating the perception of visual space in front of you. But in that moment when the whole visual field is flowing and fixating, flowing and fixating, you see that the mind could create almost anything out of the data that's coming in. Is that making sense? But all of the sense gates, uh, we tend to fixate them. And because there's a delay in that processing, uh, most of the time as it enters consciousness and we're aware of it, it's already fixated. And uh, without any investigation, most of us believe that the way that we're creating the experience is accurate. Uh, our perception is accurate. Um, and so it can be useful to begin to push into testing that so that you can begin to see how fluid the perception of the present moment is uh, and how depending on the mind state or the view that you're holding uh, affects that. Um, also in hearing space, of course, uh, can you hear the sound of my voice simply as a vibration without fixating it into words that have associated meaning to them? You understand what I'm saying based on the definition of the words that you have that I'm using not based on the definitions of the words that I may be intending as I say them. Um, have you ever been able to sit with, uh, say, external sight space and allow it to flow to the point where you're not uh, fixating it and then noticing it just as, a, as really a pointillated collection of colored dots that swirl around? without actually fixating it into a representational image. And then what is the response to that the level of uh, impermanence in, in each of the sense gates? Uh, when you talk about, say, the progress of insight uh, and you move through the first few stages, the fifth stage is called dissolution. And what's characteristic of that stage is that you don't fixate the body-mind. And so it's simply flowing and the experience of the solidity of the body dissolves. The barrier between inside and outside dissolves. The barrier between the sense gates dissolve. And you're just in this uh, energetic experience still with consciousness knowing what's happening. Christian? In the sort of Buddhist thought, is, th is that experience, is that supposed to represent some sort of deeper or truer reality? Because it seems like you could frame it different ways, like you could frame it as an altered state of consciousness. Um, like, I don't, I don't know if that, if my question is quite making sense, but it's kind of like asking where's the center of the universe? Yes, where is it? It's uh, everywhere and nowhere. <laughs> it is often a state that's uh, um, confused with enlightenment or with the cessation experience. Uh, and 
the usual ad advice is that when you come out of the dissolution experience, you're dumped into the knowledge of the miseries or in the Christian formulation of that, the dark night of the soul. So the fearfulness that the, there is no self-experience that's permanent, the, the misery that nothing will last, including the human body that you're in. And then uh, disgust is often the English translation for dukkha, although I tend to prefer reactivity, which is the way Dan Brown translates it. Shinzen also translates it as unsatisfactoriness, which is uh, also, I think, uh, good. Um, old age, sickness, and death. You get what you want, but you still lose it. Sometimes you don't get what you want. Sometimes you have to put up with things you don't want. And then there's a subtle, ongoing, constant irritation that nothing is the way that you would have it if you were in charge of anything. Since you're double-edged sword, it's not how you want it. You're not in charge. Um, that's different than coming out of uh, the cessation experience into bliss. Uh, an intensity of bliss. But what I'm really um, talking about here tonight is how do you uh, hold these experiences? Do you know uh, uh, and are you confident that you are looking around the environment that you're in and the things that you're paying attention to uh, are preferences that have been conditioned? Do you understand the conditioning that it goes into each of the selections. Can you track the various mind uh, moments that you collect like a string uh, and then create the panorama that you uh, experience? Do you have a sense that it's this um, compilation of preferences that you're experiencing or does it take on a sense of reality that uh, is uh, not that so in terms of right view then you're not in the right view in terms of the understanding of the dharma you're in the ordinary view and then how would you pick apart these things and then can you track the views that uh, find their way between the pure sensing experience and the process of making them into something? Or why would that even be useful to do? I think that it's useful to do because uh, happiness is really in the present moment and to experience the present moment the way that it is allows uh, that a sense of happiness uh, to intensify. We tend to be quite uh, privileged, or at least uh, most of the people that I uh, work with tend to be quite privileged. Um, when you think about the the suffering of the world, it's it's often overwhelming and. Uh, how would you um, find a sense of happiness if uh, the material conditions that you lived in were much uh, less abundant? 
I remember the first time that I went to Myanmar, I was quite surprised by how um, light everything seemed to be and how kind everybody was just as a, a matter of habit. Um, and, uh, you know, materially, it was it's quite different than here. Even when we went uh, into the suburbs and, and uh, to the countryside, uh, it seemed quite different. Uh, most of the time in uh, countries that are uh, materially much lo much uh, less well off, uh, I noticed an aggression from people uh, in seeing uh, people like me that have so much affluence in comparison, but that was completely absent uh, in my experience there. Um, <clears throat> which doesn't mean that there isn't uh, avarice and greed, just that it isn't as, uh, there is um, was less anger. Um, and then I wonder how it is now with COVID and the, the military coup and the severity of the oppression that's there. So you have the capacity to sense an object that can be sensed when there's contact, a consciousness of the sensing experience arises, which is in the pure sensing capacity. Obviously, the sensing capacity that you have is subject to impermanence and to dukkha, so that the, the brilliance of the young body gives way to the aging process and the, the perception changes. Um, based on that as well. And then that undifferentiated, unfixated, unattached sensing experience is evaluated for processing speed, Vedna is the Pali word, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral are often the translations for that. But I um, tend to be more comfortable with needs, urgent attention, doesn't matter and uh, pleasant if there's time for processing. The mind moment speed is quite clear, and that research is pretty solid. Urgent uh, matters uh, jump to the head of the line and are processed in three-eighths of a second, and pleasant experience uh, is uh, not jumped to the head of the line and takes about a half a second to process. The self-experience or consciousness is takes about a half a second to process. One of the reasons why it's so challenging to begin to pick this stuff apart is that most of the time, the process of identifying an unattached uh, um, attachment in, uh, in a strictly Buddhist sense means that you attach or fixate the sensing experience into something that has meaning. So the solid, undifferentiated, the, the vibratory, undifferentiated energy sense of sensing is fixated and solidified into something when you attach to it. So when we say in Buddhism, non-attachment, we mean that you don't cling, you don't grab on to the fixation or the uh, attachment of the sensing experience that it just comes and goes not in the uh, attachment theory sense where you form uh, meaningful relationships. 
the processing speed is faster usually than the time it takes to create the conscious experience of it. So most of the time, the sensing experience is already formed into the conditioned, fixated experience. And so as it enters consciousness, it already has that whole process completed and you're just seeing where you've arrived. You don't see the deliberation, the process of trying different kinds of uh, meaning uh, out unless you can encounter a sense experience where it takes longer than a half a second to uh, parse it. So I like auditory experience for that, listening to sounds that you don't know what they are. And if that process lasts longer than a half a second, you'll be able to watch the mind attempting to fixate something and you'll be able to see it change and morph and then become quite real. And then if there's more evidence that indicates that the identification was improper, it flows again and then fixates again. Can you come into a place where you're constantly examining conceptual reality for the elements that you created it out of and to investigate into to the preferences or the, the hierarchy of uh, uh, attraction that you created this uh, conceptual reality out of? Did you enjoy the dog bark? Did you find it disruptive? Do you like high dog barks or low dog barks? <laughs> you've been here for a while you understand that it's a new feature of the environment since the, the dog has only been here for a week um, I tend to find dog barking irritating um, and disruptive it, it, it grabs my attention Is that all making sense? So you collect based on your capacity to sense data. You evaluate the speed which, which you need to attend to it. And then in that order, it's compared to the perceptual database. And if there's an entry in the database that matches closely enough the history of the meaning of that particular entry of the database attaches to the, the experience of the present moment and it takes on that meaning. Stas? So does this apply to meditation? So most of the pleasant, blissful meditative experiences, um, you know, they're, you know, does it mean it takes longer to process that? Um, I think I'm just thinking like, you know, like if you're meditating in a very stressful environment, uh, which most retreats are super, you know, safe and mellow places. Oh. Um, anyways, but, you know, a lot of the pleasant experience start happening. Obviously, there's frightening things, too. Not sure what you're asking. Uh, I just think about the processing speed of because uh, you move out of the 
I think, you know, if you're going to like a dissolution of self experience, um, so that's the kind of consciousness. Does that mean you're shifting into the kind of more awareness? Is that faster? Or are we only talking about conceptual reality? Um, I don't know. To, I don't think that the processing speed of, of the the brain changes. It's just what's what's coming up. So, for instance, um, in I'm going to um, talk about this, but I I'm probably not going to remember uh, the the numbers precisely, but um they've done studies on practice and depending on the practice you do of course it has a different effect on the different uh, different parts of the brain that uh the theravada practice has a tendency to shut down the parts of the brain that cause the self-experience or activate during the self-experience and so you have this uh, greater perception of not self, but when you get it deep into uh, a, a, a no self state, you don't tend to, to form memories associated with the self experience. So they're harder to recall. I was talking to uh, a monastic about this and he, he said that his teacher said that um, if you hold uh, the wisdom function on, um, while you enter into the no self state that you should be able to make memories it, so that that uh, the typical teaching around going into no self uh, if you also shut down the wisdom function is when you don't make the memories but if you uh, keep that active you do in the tibetan way of practicing you, you shift out of the localized uh, part of the brain into the part of the brain that holds global experiences so the unitive experience arises because the the way of practicing activates the part of the brain that holds global experience and you lose the identification with self because the uh, activations in the part of the brain that create local experiences that are often identified with the self um, becomes less active you still have the the capacity to memorize mem remember those experiences and the self-experience is still part of it it's just that there's been a shift out of the local experience into the unitive global experience um, but i don't know that we know yet enough uh, about this and in the description of uh, um, enlightenment experiences depending on the tradition the the patterns of brain activation are quite different so that it may be that the experience of enlightenment that each of the different lineages are talking about are actually different experiences even though they're conceptually talked about in the same way um, but you know we're, we're mainly householders and we're mainly practicing because we want uh, what to suffer less to find a sense of uh, meaning and purpose in life so that it seems rewarding as you age of course life becomes harder to do because the body uh, is um, aging 
<laughs> I was going to describe it differently, but I think I'm going to check it out. <laughs> um, I notice in my own practice that when I come into these these states where I'm simply being, um, that uh, mainly what's happening is I'm holding the view of, of this lively awakened awareness. Um, and the, the quality of life takes on this sacredness. Um, but it, it's, it's at the same time purposeless in a, in a way. Um, it's, it's just this capacity to be in this experience that feels incredibly rich and meaningful and, and uh, the word sacred uh, comes up. And then it goes and all of that quality, all of those qualities go with it. Uh, but as the capacity to come into those states uh, increases and is more reliable, the, the going of them doesn't matter so much. Uh, Christian? Do you find that you form memories of, of these experiences or do you find that, there's, that you've gained that sort of maybe metacognitive aspect of being able to turn that memory formation on? No, I, I remember it. Um, quite vividly. Um, so, there's the aspect of imagination as well. I'm continuing on my description of you as I'm looking at the clock and seeing that we're going to run out of time. Um, when you don't have a, an entry in the perceptual database that matches close enough to the experience of the present moment and the memory, uh, then the imagination creates uh, a uh, perception of it or a, a meaning to it. And then you create in that. That's one of the reasons why novel experiences can be so um, energizing for some people because the imagination is the thing that's creating meaning in, in creating them, where, whereas you're just in the old humdrum database over and over again. It's less uh, varied, less exciting sometimes. Um, and then the moment is formed. There it is. Views slip in between that ultimate reality and conceptual reality, and then they can change the way that uh, conceptual reality is created. If you have an angry mind, it infuses the perception of the present moment with anger. If you have a happy mind, it infuses it. The Buddha talked about it as lust, uh, aversion, sloth and torpor, restless and agitation, doubt, skeptical doubt all informing the nature of things. I like to also talk about it through the lens of attachment theory and then recognizing when a secure view arises, when a dismissing view arises, when a preoccupied view arises. And if you're disorganized in the, uh, in the way that you form attachment views, 
the variations of the views that arise. Um, because if you don't track all of that, of course, and you just take conceptual reality to be what it is, then it informs your intention and action. And that you may find that the misperception of the experience of the present moment informs an intention that then leads to you taking an unskillful action, which then creates a, a karmic thread that is uh, difficult or challenging. Whereas if you can come back into the experience of the present moment and really see it the way that it is and understand how your conditioning informs the way that you've created it, you can uh, affect or adjust the intention so that the action is more in line with what's actually there, what's actually happening. And this is particularly useful in relationship to other people that as they express something to you and you take it in and you form it into a meaningfulness that you understand that you're in you're creating it out of your definitions and not necessarily theirs and that you have to check to make sure that the way that you've formulated it matches their intention in creating it so that you're actually in a place of communicating with the other person uh, instead of just thinking that the way that you've created it is what they've meant uh, and then reacting from that place so that we're in this constant dialogue and exchange of uh, experience uh, around it. Does that make sense? I use the example of, um, I grew up in a household where if you made, uh, you took an action that was in violation to my dad's code, it meant that he was entitled to punish you. And he would always start the process with, oh, you've made a mistake. And now I'm going to punish you. And I had a, a friend who would say, oh, but in his family system, that would be followed by his mother comforting him. So if he said, oh, to me, I would brace and be ready. But then he would feel rejected because actually what's supposed to follow uh, his communication of that was opening to be comforted. And uh, it, it was contentious for quite a long time because the response of bracing preceded the uh, conscious awareness. And so I would already be bracing by the time I heard the word that he was saying. So it was always uh, having to relax after. And he would forget that awe meant something entirely different to me than it meant to him. And he would still say it and then recognize that he'd said it and it, it caused a reaction in me and uh, often apologize for saying it after he'd already said it because that also preceded uh, consciousness. Is that making sense? But in the beginning, I just uh, reacted. He just reacted. And then I reacted to his reaction. And there was very little sense of it. I braced, 
he felt rejected and then withdrew and I uh, was confused how an expression of vulnerability would, would result in his withdrawing. Is that making sense? So we come to this place where we go, wait, what's going on here? <laughs> what does that mean to you? This is what it means to me because of my conditioning and that the view seemed compelling in that moment, that bracing was the thing to do. Uh, so, um, Why don't we do some practice around view, which would be a meta practice? Is that making sense? Uh, I like to teach it as a concentration practice, and I like to teach it around the view so that we can begin to, to develop this sensitivity to the constantly changing view, because depending on what that view is, it completely uh, transforms the, the data as we create a reality from it. And the more sensitive you get to that, and the more you see that the view uh, affects the creation of conceptual reality, and you see conceptual reality as this very changeable um, uh, um, model that's, that's um, easily affected, uh, depending on what uh, collection of mind moments you've gathered, uh, it it really does have the effect of opening you to a constant inquiry of what's happening, rather than settling into this sense that you know what's going on. Even though in the beginning, often there's a fearfulness that comes up uh, when you shift out of this idea that things are solid and you know into this process of impermanence uh, that all making sense all right so go ahead and take your meditation posture so any comments or questions about the practice that we just did I feel the compulsion to ask, how do I look through the mind state of loving kindness? <laughs> George, I have a question. Sure. I think what I was asking before was, uh, do you have to be settled to make progress in meditation? Um, I would say that... Um, the self the self experience of the meditation is not a good barometer of how you're doing. Um, that it's better to just evaluate the the the, the long view uh, to see about that. I can give you an example. Um, I went on a 15 day Shin retreat, and I was uh, I, at the time I was doing two four hour sits. So I do a four hour sit in the morning and a four hour sit in the afternoon. And I usually when I start the retreat will do breath counting until I can count for an hour without losing my count and then shift into Vipassana. 
and on and uh, on this particular retreat, I never got into. Uh, I never in in fifteen days of doing two four hour sits a day could I get more than say two or three minutes without losing the count. It had really never happened to me before, and I, for at least for a long long time, and I and uh and by the end of it, I was so frustrated and angry and. Matt, you know, just really irritated that I, my whole plan for the retreat was out the window and I couldn't uh, concentrate at all. And then about six weeks after that, there, I had a huge uh, shift that was completely unexplainable uh, from the self-perception of what actually was happening during the retreat. Is that making sense? Yeah, I, I think I mean more like uh, like your life's together and you feel safe to explore oh. meditation. Um, I think maybe the idea of um, whether you have the time, energy, and resources available to do it uh, is one thing. Um, but I don't know that uh, I would not practice uh, or not pursue it if my life was unsettled. Um, I would uh, continue to try and practice. I mean, I keep trying too. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, do you want to have happen? No, I think I mean, you know, it's just not conducive to. Uh, oh. Right. But then I hear all these stories, you know, books written about it, of all these people having just horrible life circumstances and events leading to spontaneous enlightenment. Right. Um, one can always hope. <laughs> <laughs> When I started practicing Vipassana about uh, 30 years ago, um, as I was ungraciously reminded by one of my students the other day, uh, my life was complete chaos. Uh, and I was in a terrible state. Um, Shenzhen can vouch for that too. <laughs> yeah, did I tell you what? The you, first time... <laughs> what he told me personally <laughs> did he yeah ah. yeah he told me uh the first time he met me he thought i looked like a drowned rat <laughs> so interesting i'm quite different i'm unrecognizably different or so my old friends tell me. Good enough? <laughs> or maybe I should say, as good as you're going to get. <laughs> um, what's coming up? We have four spaces left in the retreat of in December for a week in the in the mountains. Uh, 
Um, take a look at that if you're interested in practicing. On Saturday, we're starting a level one series, which will go for the next six weeks every other week on Saturday. I'm teaching with Zach Oldenburg and Laura Kosner. So if you're interested in that, take a look. We're going to start another level two in January. I'm going to do a meditation and addiction weekend retreat in February. Um, I think that's about everything that's coming up. Uh, anyway, it's it should all be up on the website. And if you're interested in any of it, take a look and you can register. Um, I offer the class on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. So I offer the teaching freely. Then I hope that you'll uh, make a donation, help support me and also the work Meta Group is doing. You can find a link for that on the website. Thank you for coming. I really appreciate your practice and I'll see you soon. Bye.